Welcome to Value Added, the real estate podcast where we speak with the brightest minds in the world of real estate who provide, create, and realize value in an ever-changing market. If you're a real estate professional delivering value to your clients, an investor creating value not seen by others, or a busy professional who passively invests in real estate to grow the value of their hard-earned dollar, then you're in the right place. And now your host, Nick Walters. Hey gang, welcome to another episode of Value Added the Real Estate Podcast. On this week's episode, we're chatting with Todd Robinson. Todd is the founding member of the Robinson Law Firm. They are based in Atlanta, Georgia, with offices in Paramus, New Jersey, as well as New York City. The Robinson Law Firm's clients include community and regional banks, institutional non-bank lenders, investment and asset managers, national REITs, commercial real estate investors, and small business owners. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's get rolling. Um, yeah, again, pr- appreciate the time. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm sure that you're a you're a busy guy, especially with the work from home. You know, working around the family. I got my two year old upstairs. I I think my wife yeah. got him down for a nap. So, <laughs> yeah, we've got three. We got three boys. So six, six, four, and two. And they're it's, it's it's we're we're in the weeds. We're in yep. the weeds for sure. I've got a two year old and one on the way in about two weeks. So. <laughs> Whoa! Awesome. Now, where are yeah. you located? Are you up in up in the Northeast? Yeah, I'm based. Uh, I was in New York City for 15 years, and we just moved to the Connecticut suburbs a year ago. Okay. So, yeah. Enough anyway, enough, of this, enough for the concrete jungle. <laughs> exactly. All right, let's get rolling. Yeah. Uh, Todd Robinson, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Hey, thanks very much, Nick. I appreciate it. Let's uh let's talk about your career for a second. How uh how did you get into law in the first place and and talk a little bit about where uh what's gotten you to uh where you are today? Yeah, sure. So, I uh grew up in in Athens, Georgia, and so I went to the University of Georgia for undergrad. My mom was a professor at UGA, so that's what drew us to to Athens. Um and then graduated in 2004 and I took 5 years off in between undergraduate and, and grad school. Um, and well, I would, it's funny enough, my undergrad degree is in social work. So it had nothing to do with law or real estate or finance or anything like that. But I was in and out of court all the time doing uh, child protection work, funny enough. And, and it was really, it's miles away from what I do now. But that experience got me into the courtroom and got me interested in law as a, as a profession. And from that, um, I started looking into it and there, I have no lawyers in my family. And so I just started realizing, Hey, this, I think this would be a good profession. I like these experiences. And so I went into law school and, uh, graduated from Emory, uh, university, university law school, uh, in 2012 and, um, and quickly got into real estate, actually real estate litigation to begin with. I was, uh, I was, I, my first job out of law school was as a litigator. Uh, so I was, ri- I was litigating real estate disputes, business disputes, partnership disputes, things like that, which I think when I transitioned into transactional work, it really gave me a good foundation to know the pressure points in the deal that really need to be protected if you're representing the buyer or the seller uh, to, to guard against those disputes or potential disputes down the road. Um, so, you know, after 
I probably was a, was a full-time litigator for probably two years and then gradually started developing a, my own book of business, my own client base. I'm, I'm very entrepreneurial uh, in that regard. It's funny. I, I was on another podcast uh, with this wealth manager in Ohio. And after I was kind of telling him my story, he said, you just kind of sound like an entrepreneur that has a law degree, uh, which, which I guess is kind of accurate because we've got a couple of businesses that I'm, I'm involved in. The law firm's obviously the main one, but uh, I've got a real estate investing vehicle that I use to purchase and sell, purchase and sell real estate. We've got uh, a title company that I own. Uh, there's a process serving company that I'm a partner in, where it's a property management company that I'm a partner in. So we, uh, we've kind of expanding that, um, that footprint, if you will, but, uh, drilling down to kind of how I get into multifamily is, uh, just again, developing clients, developing an interest in real estate, uh, from the beginning and started working with networking with multifamily sponsors and learning more about the business. And this was years ago and really saw the need for a, uh, uh, an advisor who kind of provides the soup to nuts services as I do. Um, because I was talking with these multifamily clients and they were saying, well, I got to have my real estate attorney. I got to have my title company. I got to have my syndication and securities attorney. And then I got to have another, someone else to do the loan opinion for the lender. And I got someone and so I thought you don't need five different attorneys to do all this kind of this kind of work. Um, and so we developed a practice in multifamily acquisitions, in particular, representing borrowers and sponsors from the beginning to end. Uh, and whether it's negotiating the letter of intent through negotiating the purchase agreement, um, negotiating loan docs with the lender, and then helping with uh, the securities raise. So we're you know SEC attorneys and do five hundred six B and five hundred six C equity raises. We don't actually raise the capital, but we document the transactions on behalf of the sponsors. And so a lot of our clients, when they realize, hey, you can just go to one firm and get all this work done. It's just a, it's just better off. You know, it's less worry for them than having to worry about six or seven different attorneys. So that's your value add. That's your, that is your, your value add proposition is, is a one-stop shop for any legal matters uh, from putting together the the uh, legal documents for the fundraise to the the transactional uh, matters with the the acquisition and and future disposition of these assets. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, uh, we we all and being a you know relatively small firm, we can flat fee a lot of things uh, as well, and, and I think clients really like that. This is a flat fee for syndication work. Um, typically, the, on on depending on the size of the deal and the complexity of the deal, we can flat fee. Uh, acquisitions as well. But then having that partner long term, um, I think is really where the value is added. You know, after the acquisition is, is, is over and the buyers bought the property and everyone's happy, and we have a closing dinner, we're still involved with that client, uh, making sure the property management's up and running, making sure the construction budget is, is being executed and the business plan is being executed timely. We're dealing with tenant issues, like I said earlier, we don't, we don't, we're not an eviction firm, so we don't handle the actual eviction. But we've had some clients ask us to do that, and it, just based on how we're structured, um, I mean, unless it was a volume that we would handle, it's not really worth our our time. I don't think it's better to. There's a lot of firms that can do it more uh, less expensive than we can. But like we're, you know, this afternoon I got to file a response to a Fair Housing Act claim, uh, a HUD claim on behalf of a tenant who files a, a discrimination action. Um, sometimes tenants will get, will find the, um, in Atlanta, it's called the volunteer, Atlanta, Atlanta volunteer 
Lawyers Association, which will represent tenants for free against their landlords. And so those are actual lawsuits rather than eviction lawsuits. So when that stuff gets escalated, we'll, we'll get involved. So take that example of representing uh, clients in fair housing claims. Uh, have, you ever, have you ever had a, a situation where your, your client was filing a claim against another client of yours on the, the landlord side? No, you mean like landlord versus landlord or like we would, we would be representing a tenant? Representing a tenant filing a, a claim against one of your clients that you may have, uh, ha- have transacted with in the past. No. So we, we get a lot of calls from tenants and I think that's because kind of how our advertising is set up and we usually say we don't represent tenants. I'll represent a commercial tenant in like a retail strip center that has a dispute with their landlord as long as there's no conflict. But um, we don't represent residential tenants in really any, I think, I mean, even if, even if it wasn't a conflict, I think philosophically it would be, you know, we're kind of on the landlord side. So let's go back to how you got into, you know, now you're generating, you said about 70% of your business is in multifamily work. Um, how did you, how did you carve out that niche in the multifamily world? How did you not go down the the office world or self-storage or industrial, um, how did you kind of carve out the niche for you uh, in multifamily? Uh, I think it's just a product of the clients that I was, I was targeting and, and kind of just my general business development plan and, and mindset. Um, I mean, to your point, I, I do represent, you know, I would say the broad spectrum of what we do is commercial real estate. And then under commercial real estate, we have, we're heavy multifamily, but we also represent, um, you know, office owners, uh, retail strip center owners, shopping mall owners. I represent one of the largest landlord REITs in the country that owns shopping centers all around the, all around the country and just do their work in Georgia. We represent um, uh, a family office that is, that is partnering with home builders to take down residential lots and essentially provide the equity for the lot. Uh, for the, for the lot to be built. So we just finalized a contract for 108 lots uh, here in Georgia. So our work is, I would say generally our work is commercial real estate, but I have sort of made a targeted effort to work with multifamily sponsors. And I think that started really by just kind of networking and seeing who was in the market. Um, I'm a big believer of, of making the most of your assets and whether that's personally, professionally, with your friends, um, anything. And so as soon as I, as soon as I really kind of got my first multifamily client, I was then able to go out and market that experience with other multifamily clients, you know, similar to like a sponsor who, who closes their first deal. Now you have a track record. Now you have, you know, or or especially, especially a sponsor who closes their first deal, raises money, executes their business plan, sells the asset, makes a you know 30% return on investment, they now have that track record to go and and market those that experience to other other investors. So it just kind of it really just kind of snowballed. I also got involved in um a couple um speaking opportunities. I've given a lot of presentations on I have, I have a whole presentation on documenting the purchase agreement to the buyer's advantage. Uh, and what are some of the strategies when negotiating a PSA that you want to see or language you want to see in the contract to protect the buyer? Um, 
I've got a whole other presentation on foreign investors, how to deal with foreign investors, the tax implications of dealing with foreign investors. Uh, another presentation on what a syndication operating agreement looks like, just just to give um, you know give sponsors a general overview. Um, I started. I also started representing. You probably heard of Rod Cleef and yep. and his mm-hmm. group. Yeah. So we. So I was the attorney that uh, represented them in their recent acquisition of their property in Atlanta. Uh, and so I frequently give, uh, I guess, lectures or uh, engaged as a speaker to their to their warriors, um, who is their their group of of real estate investors who are looking to get into the business. And so it's a factor of marketing, speaking events, and just kind of working with the with existing clients to get referrals for new clients. Let's talk about and, marketing. Let, yeah. Let's talk about marketing for a second. Yeah, I, I want to. Okay. I want to ask you. You just you just touched on uh, you know l- leveraging your you know your marketing and your your reach. Um, how have you been able to leverage uh, social media in uh, in building your business? I have gotten. I'm a big believer in LinkedIn. I've gotten a lot of clients from LinkedIn. Honestly, um, I use it as a tool to build a brand. Uh, I use it as a tool for engagement with the market, uh, you know, to learn what other people are doing in the market, to learn what brokers are, are saying, to learn what, you know, National Multifamily Housing Council is saying. And I, I really use it to, to target decision makers um, in, in companies and in particular in multifamily companies. And so if I'm, if I'm looking to say there's a particular investment uh, company that I want to represent or I want to start working with, I'll find them on LinkedIn. I'll see who their executives are, who their C-suite individuals are. Uh, And then I'll just ask them out to lunch, ask them out for coffee, send them a message, see if we can find some mutually beneficial synergies and and, and go from there. A lot of times people say no, uh, and I'm fine with that as we're at least connected on LinkedIn and, and I'll still be in front of them as I'm continuing to post things and, and be uh, in the conversation. Uh, I also, I'm also a big believer in, in, you know, when I'm meeting a potential client, I don't ask for their business right away or really at all. It kind of happens naturally. I'm, I'm a big proponent in offering something first rather than asking for a business first. So a lot of my multifamily clients, what I do is I connect them with other high net worth individuals, other equity providers. I know a lot of, I do a lot of lending work. So I represent a lot of lenders and real estate closing. So if my particular client or a potential client that I'm trying to work with is looking for a loan, I'll make that connection and try to provide as much value as I can to them so that, you know, they see me as a, as a, as a profitable team member rather than a cost center. Let's talk about that a little bit. I want you to recall a a particular deal off the top of your head where you had you and your team who were running the deal had to dig really deep to get the deal across the finish line. Can you think of something that, uh, yeah. that you really had to dig deep to, uh, to get a deal closed? Yeah, I've got a pretty good example. Um, was working with one set of, uh, sponsors. They were new sponsors. Um, and they were trying to take down a huge project in Houston, $35 million deal, huge value add, like $10 million of construction money. And the private equity firm that was going to offer or put in 70% of the equity got, they just pulled out of the deal. And they 
they it was it was uh i've never seen anything like it but they basically pulled out of the deal they they demanded that the sponsor turn the property over to them and then they just took down the deal themselves and they paid every they paid everybody back so it wasn't like everyone was left high and dry but all of these you know this these sponsors that had you know 50 or 60 investors uh, money was tied up and they were the reputation was on the line uh they they were now without a deal well simultaneously i had another client in atlanta that was dying for some equity because he we were trying to close a 25 million dollar acquisition and he was he happened to be about three million dollars short and the houston deal uh, uh lost about three million dollars so i quickly was able to connect them and and structure a transaction where the the houston sponsorship group was able to come into the atlanta group bring their investors with them you know rebrand the atlanta deal as part of their transaction and then they were able to save face with their investors they didn't lose any money and then we closed the atlanta deal uh and everyone was happy um it was it was two weeks of just you know i, I felt like i was just spinning plates in the air trying to get it all done so how does a a new sponsor with no track record number one how do they get how do they get that far into a thirty five million dollar deal in Houston that ended up not working out but then you making the introduction to a whole new outfit in atlanta how does how does that work you know th- these these guys in the Houston deal they must have they, they must have had a track record a track record in business somehow. Correct. They did. They did. They, they did. They had a couple deals under their belt. They were new. They didn't. They haven't sold anything, so they couldn't really show the returns. But they had a couple deals under their belt, and they had, um, you know, some friends and family that they were raising money from. So they weren't completely new. But I think it was the largest deal that they were going to take um, to date. And, and part of the part of the problem that the the private equity fund had was that their team was really fragmented. You know, they they were not all in one place. So they had, you know, the the asset manager was in Delaware, the construction manager was in Georgia, you know, the actual key principal deal sponsors were in Pennsylvania. No one was in Texas. And so it was like, how are you gonna take this down? And I think the 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 private equity fund just kind of pulled the strings pulled the rug out from under them and said, This is we just don't have faith in getting this thing done. Um so they did have, and you know, I think it was a win-win for everybody. And and the brokers on the Atlanta deal just couldn't believe that I was able to make this connection happen and get the deal closed. Because I mean, we were we were begging for extensions at that point, trying to get it done. Um, so, well, that's just the power of of a network and and putting people together, right? Well, exactly right. Yeah, I mean, and and part of my. You know, I don't know many attorneys that would have taken that extra step. It's kind of like whatever I can do to help move this transaction along. You know, and we're we're all making money at the end of the day. You know, I get paid, the sponsor gets paid, investors are getting their returns. Um, so it doesn't make any sense to me why attorneys would not help out in that kind of situation. Well, you call yourself a transactional attorney, but you're certainly much more than that. Going back to your your entrepreneurial mindset, and also we're going to talk a little bit about your your uh, investment 
side of the business. Um, that that's where mm. that's where this creative matchmaking comes about, right? Just thinking thinking outside of the box and not thinking as a transactional attorney, but thinking as a capital raiser, which you've done before, as well as a, a matchmaker, right? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't have my blinders on that. I, I'm only an attorney. I'm only providing the legal work. That's, I'm not going to get involved. I definitely see the deal through my, through the sponsor's eyes and, and, you know, see it as a partnership. I mean, you know, I'm not, I see myself as an integral part of the team, not just a, a one-legged horse, so to speak. So your, uh, your investment shop, Iron Street Capital, tell us a little bit about how that came about and, past deals that you've been involved with and anything that you're working on today? Yeah. So, you know, I started Iron Street, I don't know, I'd say probably two or three years ago. And it's really just kind of a, a an investment vehicle for me personally. Um, I've got some partners in the, in the company as well. And we're, you know, it's a, it's a fine line to walk, at, you know, put on my attorney hat and then put on my investment, you know, sponsor hat. And I don't, I don't like mixing the two, uh, but sometimes, sometimes you do. So if I'm, a lot of times, if I'm working on a transaction, there could be an opportunity for me to, you know, be a part of the deal and bring in my investors, you know, versus just being the attorney on the transaction. Uh, and so when those opportunities present itself, we'll take advantage of it. Uh, but you know, I have the same appetite for, for deals as, as the next sponsor. I mean, I, I see the value in multifamily investing. Um, I see the returns. I see the need for housing in this country, and and I see the the resilience of the market when it comes, uh, particularly with multifamily, you know, as opposed to other types of asset classes. And you know, the the money that I earn and the money that I make, you know, I want it to be invested in real estate, and so that's why I started at Iron Street to to take control of those investment opportunities. Um, we just closed. I have a, I have a GP interest in some properties down in Florida, 90 units in Tampa, Florida that we just closed about two weeks ago. Um, and we've got several other opportunities that we're considering, uh, mainly in the Atlanta uh, market. Uh, but, you know, we're, you know, as the next guy, you know, we're interested in helping other investors uh, earn, earn returns on their capital and passively doing it through a company such as Iron Street or such as you know, other other sponsors out there just makes the most sense these days, given the volatility of, of the stock market and other opportunities. Ty, let's talk about uh, the market. It, the market has changed significantly in the last, uh, you know, since since March. How have, let's just talk, let's just put your, your investment firm hat, your investor hat on. Uh, mm-hmm. What have been the glaring differences in what you're underwriting today versus six months ago? You know, the biggest challenge is uh, the, we call them the COVID reserves for Fannie and Freddie loans. You know, the, the 12 months of interest or 18 months of interest, depending on the, the size of the deal, that's killing a lot of underwriting these days. I mean, having to, having to reserve or account for that, that cash flow just kills your IRR and it just kills your returns. And a lot of deals are just not getting done because of that. I have seen some waivers. I have, I have seen Fannie at least, at least in July, I think in the beginning of August, Fannie and Freddie have, have, you can get a waiver for those reserves. And, but you're really only going to get that waiver. If you're an experienced sponsor, you're in their database, they know you. Um, 
they're going to, they're going to, they can, they can offer a reserve. Um, and then on the bridge side, you know, we've closed, we closed a $40 million, uh, $44 million bridge deal in Alabama just recently, about four properties. Um, you know, I was the, I was the transactional attorney on the deal and, um, you know, the bri- interest rate on bridge loans are just outrageous. I mean, it, it, you can't find anything below 8%, seven, maybe on a bridge. We, we got retraded on a deal about a million and a half bucks uh, because of the exit LTV. Now, so the term sheet of the lender may have 75% of loan to cost, not to exceed 67, in this particular deal, 67.5% of the exit LTV. So what that means is the, the appraiser goes in, does their analysis, you give all the data to the appraiser and they give you their value in five years after you've increased rents, you've done your renovations, what's the stabilized value of this property? Well, six months ago, the stabilized value included, um, you know, organic rent growth of four or 5% because the market was on fire. Now the organic rent growth assumptions in in an appraiser's uh, calculations are 2%, maybe 3%. And so because of that, your, your exit LTV may not, that the appraiser is coming back with, may not match your business plan or your exit strategy. So I would just prepare and caution my clients of, of that possibility. Now, in this particular uh, instance, you know, this is just maybe indicative of the market or this particular lender. We went back to the lender and said, look, go to the broker. I mean, go to the, go to the uh, appraiser. Here's our data. And tell them that they should change their assumption to the organic rent growth of 4%. Because that's what we have in our underwriting. It's reasonable. Here's what the market's doing. Here's, our, here's the broker's reports. There's no reason why you can't do that. And the, and the appraiser even said to us, if I, get, um, if I get instructions from my bank, who's my client, to change this appraisal, then I'll do that. Well, in this instance, the bank did not uh, did not do that. They just said, no, you know what? We agree with his valuation. We're not going to change anything. So I think that was, again, the bank was hedging a little bit. These were these were unstabilized assets, you know, 34% occupancy. The bank was taking a risk and they were probably quite happy that the appraiser came back at a lower LTV than, uh, you know, because that lowered their loan amount by a million and a half. That's, uh, that's really interesting. Um, Todd, we're going to uh, conclude this episode with the hard hitting questions. These are the questions that we ask every one of our guests. The first question I always ask is what is your why? I would say my why is, um, for my kids, honestly, trying to build something that's going to last for a lifetime for my lifetime and my kids lifetime. Cool. I like that. I really appreciate the time, Todd. Uh, I'm going to let you go. And uh, I really appreciate you adding your value today. Absolutely. No, thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to leave a rating and a review, which will help us introduce the podcast to other listeners. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel, which will give you access to other episodes you may have missed. Lastly, if you'd like to learn more about investing alongside us, then head on over to valueaddedpodcast.com. Have a great day, and we'll talk to you next week.